Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the goodness of Jesus. Father, it, it doesn't matter what happens. It's not, not that those things aren't important, but there's nothing we go through that can overwhelm the goodness of Jesus. I know it can feel like it at times. And we all struggle. But we can always come back to that place where we understand how much you love us and how you're going to work all things out even when we don't see how. And so, Father, we pray as we seek you in your word this evening that you would guide us, that your spirit would be our teacher, that yours is the voice we would hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you can remember all the way a month back, should we summarize the whole Bible up to this point? In Genesis, God created. In Exodus, God delivered. In Leviticus, God gave a law. In Numbers, God counted. There's a few other things. In Deuteronomy, we got the law again. In Joshua, they got the land. In Judges, they should have lost the land because they were dumb. In Ruth, we saw that even though they were being dumb, not everybody was being dumb. <laughs> there were a few good folks like Boaz and whatnot. And then we got to 1 Samuel. And Hannah prayed for Samuel, and she got him. And he rebuked his boss, Eli, and then Eli and his kids kicked it. And the nation decided they wanted a king, and they got Saul. You know, quite often, what we, when we ask for something that is not God's will, he gives it to us just to teach us a lesson. Um, then he rose up David. David killed a really tall guy. And Saul got jealous and has been chasing him ever since. And in chapter 23, where we were at last time, um, David saved the city of Keilah from the Philistines. And then David had one of the priests with him who said, hey, Saul's going to come after you. We should get out of here. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, yeah, Saul's going to come after you. And then David inquired of the Lord again and said, well, you know, I just saved all these guys here at Keilah. They're going to be on my side, right? And God says, uh-uh. They're going to throw you out the door the moment Saul rolls up. So just, I was trying to be ghetto. Did it work? A little bit. We're going to get letters about that one. Um, did you ever, it's, it's an, actually an old VeggieTales reference. Like a lot of my references, Lord of the Rings and VeggieTales. But it's an old VeggieTales reference, and it was Mr. Lunt. We're going to get letters about that one. And I can't remember. Anyway. So he finds out, yeah, the, the, the folks from Keilah, they don't care that David just risked his life to save them. They're going to hand him over. So he runs. And that's where we pick up. Verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 1. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats, which, by the way, is what En Gedi means. Uh, then Saul took, th oh, I already read that. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. 
Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. So Saul pursues David to En Gedi, the rocks of the wild goats. Um, and Saul ends up in a cave where David and his men are hiding. Now, some will tell you that Saul went in there to take a nap. That is not Saul what Saul was doing. Saul took a newspaper. Right? Saul, Saul had business to attend to. Um, and so while he, he had a long robe, I imagine how inconvenient that would be when you're, you know, squatting in a cave. So he took his robe off and he set it aside. And David's men are like, oh, here it is. Kill him. So David goes up, cuts the corner off his robe, and he is racked with guilt. This shows his integrity. When his men say, you know, he want, they want to all kill him, and David won't let them do it. He had to restrain his servants, saying, the Lord forbid I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, I have tried to use this verse to get people to be nice to me when I'm playing pickleball. It doesn't work. So either, A, they, they don't respect the word of God or I'm not the Lord's anointed. I, I don't know which one. <laughs> you, you guys choose. But we see here David's great integrity. Right? He could have murdered this man. Even He swore he wouldn't, but he could have. Uh, we see David's great respect for Saul, and he still sees his master. He calls him his master, even though he knew that the Lord had departed from him. Even though Saul had been rejected by God, he had once been the Lord's anointed. And David respected that just that was beautiful verse 8 David also arose afterward went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying my lord the king and when Saul looked behind him David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down and David said to Saul why do you listen to the words of the men who say indeed David seeks your harm look this day your eyes have seen that the lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. 
As the Proverbs of the ancients say, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul. And Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David begins with this great respect. He bows to Saul. He calls him my lord, the king. He calls him my father, recognizing his authority as David's elder. David basically tells Saul what happened. Saul recognizes that David could have killed him and didn't. And Saul, for the first time, admits that David will be king. And he makes David promise that not to kill his descendants, which David does. A very similar promise that David had made to Jonathan. Saul leaves, and David and his men remain in the stronghold. Unfortunately, Saul will not stop pursuing David and attempting to kill him. However, I do want to point out verse 12. David points out that if God wants to kill Saul, that that's up to God. But he assures Saul that he would not do it. And this shows David's spiritual integrity. He knew God had called and anointed him to be king, but David was not seeking to make it happen on his own. He was willing to wait on God's timing. He was willing to wait on God's way. And this is an important lesson for us. God does not need our help. He asks for us to trust him and to wait for him, but he doesn't need our help. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 through 26, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel the need to help God out. He tells me to wait, and I'm like, well, I know I, know I need to wait, but, you know, I could just take a couple steps in that direction so that when the waiting's over, I just won't have quite so far to go. Or, I know you have a plan, but... You know, maybe I could do like the prelude to the plan. Or, or I could write the plan down. Or I could... God doesn't need us to do any of that. But when we wait on him, when we seek him, 
when we hope in him, then he's always going to do what's good in our lives. When we don't, it's not that he doesn't do what's good in our lives. It's that we bring consequences upon ourselves. Which is not always fun to think about, but it's true. The second thing I want to point out is that there is absolutely no change in Saul. His tears and admission of wrong and so forth meant absolutely nothing because there was no change whatsoever. We're going to see this rather quickly, but just in case we don't, um, give me a second. No, I don't want to find it. We'll find it. We'll get there. But by the time we get to chapter 26, Saul's already trying to kill him again. It doesn't last, I mean, maybe a month or two. Who knows? Because God does not want just an emotional response from us. He wants a real change. And true repentance will always come with real change. In Luke chapter 3, uh, which we're going to get to in a couple weeks on Sunday, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then he said, this is John the Baptist, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That fruit of repentance, it's evidence of repentance. And if you've truly turned from your sin, there's going to be change that's evidence of that repentance. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 13. Surrender your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. You see, we get this idea, or some people get this idea. I don't anymore. I used to. But I, people often have this idea that God is waiting to get us. Right? He, he's, he's, oh, you messed up. Here it comes. And that's, that's not how he looks at it. God doesn't want to dish out consequences. That's why he sent Jesus. He poured out his wrath on his son so that that wrath would never have to be poured out on you or I. But also, he doesn't want us to tear our garments. That was a sign back in that day. Right? You'd tear your garment, you'd sit in sackcloth and ashes, it was meant to show everybody around you that you were in mourning or that you were really sorry for what you did. But once that time was over, you put on a new garment, you go right back to the same thing. What good did it do? That's why God says, I don't want you to tear your garment. Tear your heart. God doesn't just want us to say, I'm sorry that I did it or I'm sorry that I got caught. It's that I'm so sorry I don't ever want to do it again. And we can't do this on our own. A change of behavior only lasts so long because our willpower only lasts so long. 
requires a change of heart, and only God can change a heart through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in us as we surrender our lives to Jesus. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, we read, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's what we all need. And, and I'll just I'll throw this out there. Because it may be easy to think, well, you know, I've been a Christian for 25 years. Some of you in here have been Christians longer, some a little less. Yeah, but, you know, God took out that heart of stone 25 years ago. And he gave me a heart of flesh. I, I don't, I'm good now. Real easy for that heart to get hard again. Real easy. We talked about that extensively up in Hebrews chapter 4. Real easy. Whether it's through sin or a lack of belief or a host of other things, right? Terrible situations, disdain towards the world, to let that heart become hard again. And God warns us against that. Chapter 25. Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him in his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, really at that point, there shouldn't be a verse 2. How did Samuel write the rest of this book in the next book after he died? We'll get to that in a moment. The death and burial of Samuel is recorded for us. He was the last judge. He was also the first prophet. Um, once they came into the land. And now he's dead. He was a man who remained faithful in spite of everything that was going on in Israel. So, I, I do find it interesting, and we talked about this when we got into 1 Samuel, who knows how long ago now at this point, um, that at some other writer had to step in for Samuel. Uh, other writers that are connected to the book of Samuel are Nathan and Gad. Uh, we believe Samuel wrote the book of Judges. He wrote the book of Ruth. And up to this point, probably the book of Samuel, or at least most of it up to this point. Uh, but the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel had to be attributed to these other authors, uh, to Nathan and Gad. And so we get to verse 2. And I just, I, we're going to, I mentioned it, and I'll mention it again, and it'll probably come up a couple times, but we just saw David great spiritual victory, right? He resisted the temptation to kill his enemy. He waited on God. He repented. He cried out, promised not to kill him. He was respectful, and, and all of this stuff happens, and you're like, wow, David, yeah. Then we get to chapter 25. Now, there was a man in Maun whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, thousand goats and he was a shearing and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of this man was Nabal. Now remember this man's name. Nabal, his name means fool. And the name of his wife, Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Uh, if you remember Caleb was one of the two spies originally who brought back a good report 
And when they went into the land, Caleb, at 80 years old, looked at Joshua and said, I want that land. I don't care that I'm 80. Give it to me, and I'll go get it. Joshua said, go. And Caleb went, and he got it. So here we are. Um, I mean, we're a few hundred years down the way, but still, Nabal is a descendant of that Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. And David, Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water, my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. So we got Nabal, rich guy, beautiful wife, who apparently is smarter than him. We're going to see that in a minute. Now, Nabal's sheep shears had been near where David and his men were. And essentially, David and his men watched out for them. We're going to see that here in a bit. Um, right? They accompanied them. They protected them. They didn't steal anything from them. And so David was hoping for a paycheck, essentially. It's like, hey, your guys were out here. The bandits didn't get near them, right? The Philistines didn't get near them. The, the wild animals didn't get near them. We protected your guys. We protected your property. How about you give us a little something to eat? And remember, this was a time, the time of sheep shearing was always a time of feasting and was typically a time of sharing in the abundance of what God had provided. Now, at this point, David has at least 600 men with him, along with families and others who had fled from Saul. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And he could have taken all of Nabal's goods, could have taken all of his sheep, could have killed his guys, took the, took the food and called it a day, could have. But he didn't. Now, Nabal reflects his character. He knows who David is, but he basically accuses him of treason and refuses to give him anything. Nabal, as I mentioned earlier, means fool. Now, it is suggested by some that this was actually his nickname, not his birth name, right? Mom, mom and dad didn't give birth to me. Go, let's call this kid an idiot, right? That, that wasn't most likely what happened, but he certainly lived up to his character. And that's unfortunate. Mark 4.22 said that there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. Nabal was clearly a fool, and his foolishness was coming out. Numbers 32.23 says, If you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Nabal, even if David hadn't protected his sheep. As part of the hospitality of the culture, 
he should have given David and his men something else. And even if we set aside the culture, God commanded them in the law to take care of one another. Jesus said, are you still without understanding in Matthew 15, 16 to 20? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart? And they defile a man, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Nabal bared what kind of person he really was. And his answer, David's men turn on their heels. Um, And what this means is that they left quickly because they were frightened. They were scared for their lives. So not only did Nabal speak harshly to them, uh, it's possible that he threatened them. Verse 13. So they came at the end of verse 12. They told all these words to David. And then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. What? What? So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and day. All the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male, of all who belong to him by morning light. So one of Nabal's guys goes to Abigail and goes, listen, um, Nabal done screwed up. He's a scoundrel. I love this word scoundrel. Abigail's going to call him a scoundrel in a little bit. It's not a word we use enough. Right? We, We call people all kinds of stuff, but scoundrel. Because the word in Hebrew means tumultuous, Whelp or an unrestrained child. You ever been around an unrestrained child? I remember years ago, um, we, we had a, a, a person we knew whose son was a scoundrel. We were at a house one night having a Bible study, and this kid lit the people's, I think I've told this story before, but it's appropriate, lit the people's carpet on fire in one of the rooms. He was in another room. Uh, They were supposed to be being watched. He kind of went off by himself, found matches, and lit the carpet on fire. 
his dad gave him a stern talking to and told him, you know, it's not nice to set people's carpet on fire. That is an unrestrained child. He grew up to run his own pornography website. Uh, you know, uh, now, from what I hear, because he did pass away, that he repented and came to know Christ before that, which I'm very thankful for. But unrestrained child. What, what is it? Spare the rod? You spoil the child. Uh, oh, I can't remember what it's had. But since you beat your son with the rod, he won't die, but he'll learn to respect you. <laughs> I like that verse. I never beat my children with a rod. Um, but there was a few times they got a spanking. So in Hebrews... Uh, this man also calls Nabal the son of Belial, literally a son of Satan. I mean, this is his boss. He really doesn't have a lot of respect for his boss, apparently. So he, gets, uh, so he tells Abigail all this. She gets together a feast. She sends it to David to his men. And we get kind of this insight into what David's thinking. Maybe he's talking out loud. Maybe he's muttering under his breath. But what's David thinking? Right? I protected all he had, and he didn't give me anything back. How dare he? He repaid me evil for good. You know what? The Lord do so to me also. I'm not just going to kill him. I'm going to heal every guy in his house. A little excessive, don't you think? I mean, I get it in that culture. This guy makes you mad. You kill this guy. Still not right. God had commanded them not to commit murder. David knew that. But why would you kill him? and all of his male servants, and all of his sheep shearers, and all of the servants in the house, and all of the people who worked in his fields. And that doesn't make any sense at all. So this, this, my dear brothers and sisters, is a side of David we haven't seen yet. But it would appear that David has a temper. He was apparently weakened by all that he was facing, as he has not to this point ever wanted to take vengeance for himself. We just saw that in the last chapter. Right? And with Saul, it was justified. At this point, Saul has tried to kill him five or six times. So killing Saul would have been justified. All Nabal did, he was a jerk. Fair enough. Big jerk. But he hadn't done anything to deserve this. His temper led to poor judgment. And... Poor judgment leads to poor decision-making. Have you ever heard the phrase or the term halt? You should remember halt whenever you need to make a decision. Never make a decision when you're hungry. Just don't. Chances are you're going to make a bad decision. Never make a decision when you're angry. And if you're my wife, those first two go hand in hand. She has a great case of hangry. Not right now, but it does exist. Never make a decision when you're lonely. That's why the Bible tells us that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Never make a decision when you're tired. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Never make a decision when you're there. 
Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So even though David, a man after God's own heart, anointed to be the king of Israel, a man whom we have seen time and time again act with great integrity, he slipped. Big slip. Verse 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, Oh, on me, my lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Uh, you know, with friends like these, I'm just saying, right, the, the people who work for you call you a son of Satan and, and an unrestrained child. Then your wife comes along and calls you something even, even worse. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand now, then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be his neighbor. And now this present, which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living. With the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So Abimekhael comes and she goes, listen, take the present, don't come out and start killing folk. Right? She points out that her husband's an idiot, essentially. Um, she calls him a scoundrel and also, again, a son of Satan. She says David is in the bundle of life, that God would basically give him an abundant life. She takes the blame on herself. She said, I didn't see your guys. If I'd seen your guys, I would have sent this straight away. But my husband, he's a moron. Just forgive him. You know, come on, don't do this. Right? And, and she points out that God's going to deliver David from Saul, that David's going to become king. And she goes, right, and, and I love how she kind of sneaks this in. Right, when, when God has done everything for you, you don't want this to be a grief to you. You don't want this to be an offensive heart. In other words, you don't want a spot on your record when you become king. Right, we, we see that in our political landscape today, right? Someone announces, I'm going to be candidate for, you know, governor or, or senator or, or congressman or, or whatever it is they're running for. And all of a sudden, every stupid thing that person has ever done on the Internet comes to light. Nobody cared about it before. Nobody talked about it before. It wasn't even bad before. But now that they're running for office, oh, now, now that one time you sent that one tweet So Abigail, well, she's, she's wise, right? She's a woman of understanding. 
you don't want that. You don't, you don't want that on your mind. You don't want that on your record. You don't want that on, the, on your conscience. So when all this happens, please forgive me and please remember me when you become king. And so we see her character, her humility, her wisdom. I love Proverbs 15, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Abigail knew this to be true. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. So David received from her hand what she had brought, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now, I can say this for a fact. Because I've been married for a while. And uh, my wife could attest to this. Don't ask her, though. We don't need to get into it. That there have been more than one occasion um, when I was David and she was Abigail. More than one occasion when I flipped my lid and, and she came in with the soft answer that kept me from doing anything particularly stupid. There was a few times she wasn't there. That wasn't her fault. But for the most part, God has used my wife in that way. Um, and so she keeps him from doing something stupid. He takes the gifts, tells her to go home. Um, and what is interesting, though, is this: what he says I have heeded your voice at the end of verse 35 and respected your person. Now, this was high praise in that culture. Women, right, men didn't listen to the voice of women in that culture. Men didn't respect the persons of, of women in that culture, typically. So for David to say this about her, just a huge, huge sign of respect. Verse 36. Now, as we read the next few verses, remember Romans 12, 19, which says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Just keep that in the back of your head. Now, Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in the house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning. So it was in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, when he'd sobered up, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Now we're going to stop there. Don't read the next sentence. Don't do it. Okay, maybe you already did, but that's okay. Well, there you have it. David was going to go down and get vengeance. Abigail goes home. Nabal's drunk. She's like, it's not going to do me any good to talk to him now. He gets up in the morning. He sobers up, and she goes, this is what happened. You were about to die. All of our young men were about to die. And I stopped it. And on the spot, he like has a heart attack. He becomes like a stone. He basically, he goes into a coma. And 10 days later, he croaks. And David says, blessed be the Lord. 
right? And, and, but I get it because he, he's like, I could have done something evil. And the Lord sent Abigail and stopped it from happening, and then God took care of it. Remember earlier, we don't have to help God out. He'll take care of it. Right here. He recognizes the hand of God in keeping him from wrong. Now, verse the last sentence that I know you already read. Then David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as wife. I'm, this perplexes me just a little bit. Let's read on. When the servant of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us to you, you know, to, to wish you condolences on your dead husband. Doesn't even mention the dead husband. Not even sorry that your, your son of Satan husband just croaked. Right? But David sent us to say, hey, you want to get hitched? So she arose, bowed her face to the earth, and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given uh, Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Halti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. And we're going to see that. That's going to come back a little bit later. David being the stand-up guy that he is. Oh, this poor hot chick whose no husband is now dead, right? Bible told us she was good looking. David saw her. Hmm, not too bad. Nabal doesn't deserve that. Nabal's dead? I got an idea. I have a great idea. Abigail, why don't we get married? And she goes, all right. Now, from Abigail's perspective, if they didn't have any kids and there are no children mentioned, she didn't have a claim on any of the stuff that was Nabal's. It would have gone back to his family. His land, his livestock, all of that would have gone back to his, to his father's house, to his brother or something like that. Now, if one of his brothers wanted to marry Abigail and raise up children, they could have done that. We've talked about the law of the Levirate marriage. But that's not mentioned, right? We don't have any mention of brothers. We don't have any mention of children. So it's very possible Nabal was the only one, probably a little spoiled as a result. And what would have happened to her? She would have been destitute. She could have gone back to her father's house, but what if her parents were dead? Or We don't know everything that happened. So while I'm, I'm joking, and I think it's kind of funny because, you know, in the Bible, it happens like... Nabal croaks, David, well, let's get hitched. It's like, he's dead one day, David's married to her the next. And maybe that is how quickly it happened. Um, but in that culture, David may have actually been doing her a real kindness. Because if she didn't have a family home to go to, and they didn't have any children, she would have been out on her own. Um, so while David's on a roll, he gets another wife. I mean, why not? Right? Well, hey, I got Abigail. I haven't seen Michael in a while. And you know, one wife here and another wife over there just isn't enough. So, hey, you, Ahinoam, you want to be my wife too? Right? We don't get the proposal there. We don't know if, if her husband croaked too. Um, whatever the case, we get this little note at the end that Saul had given David's wife, Michael, to another man. Um, this is going to come back once David is king. But we won't see that until 
2 Samuel. So next week, we'll see David spare Saul's life again. Uh, we will see him doing some shady stuff with the Philistines. Uh, and I think it's interesting, uh, these two sides of David that we're beginning to see. Uh, on one side, acting with integrity, trusting in the Lord. On the other side, being angry, wanting to commit murder, wanting to kill innocent people to get revenge. Um, and I think, honestly, it's because David's getting tired. I think it's because David's afraid. I think he's, he's tired of running. I think he's exhausted from fighting battles. I think he's, he's just wearing down. And, and that's why we have to remember Hulk, because he's making some really bad decisions while he's angry, while he's lonely, while he's tired. We don't know that. Well, apparently he was hungry, too, because he asked for some food. Um, but I'm just going to throw this out there. And I say it a lot, um, but understanding and seeing the two sides of David comforts me and encourages me um, because I have at least those same two sides, probably a few more. And God does not use perfect people. He uses people, and people are flawed. And to be a person after God's own heart is not to be perfect, but to be one who follows after God, accepts his correction, and lets him lead us back to following him. So until next week, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would continually help us to be people who are after your own heart, that you would give us the grace to follow you, to walk with you, to love you, and to serve you. Father, to seek you. And God, there's going to be times we get angry. There's going to be times where we make bad decisions because we were lonely or tired. or Who knows? But in those situations... Put Abigails in our lives. Put people in our lives who are going to give us wisdom and guidance and help us be wise enough to take it and to make decisions that will honor you. I pray that you'd be with us throughout the rest of our week, that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name.